Welcome to Skim This. I'm Will Livingston, in for Alex Carr this week. Queen Elizabeth passed away today at the age of 96. We'll bid our goodbyes by skimming her long-lasting reign and looking ahead for what's to come at Buckingham Palace. We've also got the other big headlines of the week, from the UN report on the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant to heat waves and wildfires in California. And to close out the show, tis the season for pumpkin spice lattes. But not if inflation can help it. We'll teach you how to recreate that fall flavor magic that'll give Starbucks a run for its money and hopefully save some of yours. We are here to make you smarter and the news less overwhelming. Let's get into the show. Today, Buckingham Palace announced Queen Elizabeth II has died at the age of 96. The Queen died peacefully at Balmoral this afternoon. The family will be around her. They have all traveled to Balmoral to be alongside her as now we mark her death. I think it's impossible to overstate the extent to which this is the end of an era. She was a a tiny woman in physical stature, but she was a giant, a towering figure in this country. Elizabeth took the crown in 1952 at age 25, after the death of her father, King George VI. The Queen was the longest reigning British monarch in history, ruling over some 67 million people across the Commonwealth. She worked with 15 prime ministers and lived through everything from the Troubles to Brexit. The Queen helped bring the monarchy into the modern age by broadcasting her family's life on radio and TV. Here she is during the first televised royal Christmas broadcast in 1957. It's inevitable that I should seem a rather remote figure to many of you, a successor to the kings and queens of history, someone whose face may be familiar in newspapers and films, but who never really touches your personal lives. But now, at least for a few minutes, I welcome you to the peace of my own home. She was known for her stoicism, commitment to her duties, and love of corgis. The spectacular revelation of a family rift of such vicious infighting that a psychologist had to be called in. A rift between the queen's corgis, the dog breed she's famously fond of. Now the UK and the world are mourning her loss. In the coming days, the queen's coffin will lie in state at Westminster Hall where the royal family, dignitaries, and eventually the public will pay their respects. And her funeral is expected to take place 10 days after her passing. The day of her burial will be an official bank holiday, so the London Stock Exchange and many businesses will close their doors. As for who will now be wearing the crown, that would be her oldest son, Prince Charles. He'll take over her duties and become king immediately. At age 73, he's coming in with a lower approval rating than his mom. Plus, Prince Charles won't just be inheriting a title. The royals have had to deal with a series of recent scandals, ranging from accusations of racism to Prince Andrew's civil sex assault case. And nations like Barbados have split ties with the Commonwealth. As they say, heavy is the head that wears the crown. How the monarchy evolves under Prince Charles' reign remains to be seen. In the meantime, Millions will be honoring Queen Elizabeth's life and legacy. Insert crown emoji here. (laughs) 
Let's get to some other headlines from the week's news and give you the context on why they matter. Starting with an update from the war in Ukraine. The United Nations atomic watchdog is urging Russia and Ukraine to establish a safety zone around the Zaporizhia nuclear plant. Here's the context. Ukrainian forces have been trying to capture the plant, which has been occupied by Russian troops since earlier this year. It's the largest nuclear power plant in Europe. And with near constant shelling from both sides, the entire continent has been on high alert, worrying about a Chernobyl-esque nuclear disaster. United Nations inspectors went to Zaporizhia last week to check out the damage. And they left saying the attacks on the power plant are like playing with fire. Fast forward to Tuesday, when a UN nuclear watchdog shared a report detailing their wrecks on how to deal with the power plant. The agency is sounding the alarms and asking for immediate establishment of a security protection zone, which basically means a no troops, no shelling, demilitarized area. The report also said that the Ukrainian operators at the plant are under constant high stress and pressure, which they say could lead to major mistakes while working. The US, the UK, and the EU are calling for Russia to withdraw from Zaporizhia and to take the UN's advice and quit the fighting there. But as of this week, Russia was reportedly still shelling the plant. Meanwhile, the Ukrainian government has called on residents of the area to evacuate, as it also weighs whether or not to shut down the plant completely. And as all of this is going down, US Secretary of State Antony Blinken made an unexpected visit to Ukraine today where he announced over $2 billion in aid for Ukraine and its neighbors. Okay, next headline. The record-setting heat wave of the past few days has pushed California to the brink. In case you missed it, it's been a really hot summer, especially for Californians. The latest Western heat wave could be the worst in the state's history and it rivals the one that hit the Pacific Northwest last summer. Some cities broke temperature records this week, from San Jose hitting 109 degrees to Sacramento clocking in at 116 degrees. The record-breaking temps have raised fears about heat-related deaths and fueled destructive wildfires, which have been more difficult to fight. One wildfire in Northern California has already killed two people. Plus, the electrical grid nearly gave out. But thanks to just one text message blast begging customers to reduce their energy usage, the state avoided major rolling blackouts. The duration and severity of the heat wave has officials worried about the damage it'll cause to the grid. And as climate change worsens, the threat of more extreme heat like this is on a lot of people's minds. For our next headline, we're going down south. Yesterday, a federal judge in Texas ruled it's unconstitutional for the Affordable Care Act to require private religious corporations to cover the cost of HIV prevention drugs called PrEP. PrEP is a preventative medication that reduces the risk of contracting HIV by up to 99%. Hundreds of thousands of Americans rely on it. But in 2020, a group of businesses and individuals in Texas sued saying that providing preventative HIV services violates their religious beliefs and makes them complicit in promoting homosexual behavior. Now, the judge is agreeing on religious freedom grounds. But experts say the government will probably appeal the ruling. 
And doctors from more than 60 organizations have signed a joint statement opposing the decision, saying that it could set a precedent that reduces access to other preventative services, like cancer screenings. And for our final headline. Today, we're here to talk about three products that have become essential in our lives. It's that time of year again. Apple announced new products yesterday, a slate of iPhone 14s, the Apple Watch Ultra, and an updated version of the AirPods Pro. The iPhone 14s come in the many sizes that we're used to. And now, it has new safety features that allow users to contact emergency services using satellite towers when normal cell service isn't working. The Apple Watch also got safety upgrades, like crash detection, which can alert family and emergency services if a user gets into a car crash. One upgrade some people are raising concerns about, the Apple Watch can now track your body temperature, which can be helpful for tracking fertility windows if you're trying to get pregnant. But privacy experts are worried about that data being used against people seeking abortions in states where they're banned. And finally, AirPod Pros have improved noise canceling, just in case you wanted to drown out your office mates a little bit more. But of course, with great upgrades come great price hikes. The top of the line iPhone 14 Pro Max starts at $1,099 and can cost up to $1,599 when you add more storage. In this economy, who knows when we'll get our hands on those things. It's the beginning of September, which basically means that... Winter's coming. Okay, maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves here. But despite the fact that we're still talking about heat waves, the days are getting shorter in the U.S. and Europe. And that has some world leaders nervous. Because ever since Russia invaded Ukraine, European countries supporting the Ukrainian effort have been dreading the thought of winter and anticipating an energy crisis, energy crisis, energy crisis, energy crisis, energy crisis. Today, we are taking a look at the European energy crisis by asking three questions. How did we get here? What solutions are on the table? And how could this affect us in the U.S.? To help us do that, we called up Matt Phillips, markets correspondent with Axios. Let's start with that first question. How did Europe end up in an energy crisis? Russia has always been a huge oil and gas producer, but when the Soviet Union collapsed, it opened the possibility for increased business between the Russian Federation and Europe. At the same time, nuclear power and coal became less popular because of safety and climate concerns. So that helped Russia become a major player in the European energy space. And according to Phillips, it wasn't the best strategy. Building their economy around a plentiful, cheap supply of gas coming out of Russia for the foreseeable future was a mistake. <laughs> As they say, you should never put all your eggs in one basket. Because now, that over-reliance on Russian energy is kicking Western Europe in the butt. Because much of Europe is supporting Ukraine in its defense against the Russian invasion. The European Union introduced an oil ban back in June, which hit Russia where it hurts most, its wallet. In response to those sanctions, just this week, Russia actually shut down a key pipeline supplying Russian natural gas to Europe called Nord Stream. 
which skyrocketed gas prices. According to one estimate by Goldman Sachs, a typical European household could spend up to 500 euros a month on their energy bills next year. The energy markets have become a quasi-theater of this war. Basically, what intelligence analysts think Russia is up to here is Russia is making a bet. So they're hoping to essentially weaken the resolve of the European countries by putting the squeeze on them this winter. Since the spring, European countries have been scrambling to figure out how to get energy without supporting Russia, but also without breaking the bank. On top of that, the extreme weather that swept across Western Europe this summer forced people to choose between spending their money on food or on keeping cool. As we edge into winter, experts are saying it's going to be tough, and it's not clear if there's enough gas to keep everyone heated in Western Europe. And it's not just about homes. Businesses rely on affordable energy to function as well. A lot of the chemical industry, which is highly energy-intensive, metals industries, you know, refining, those businesses don't work when energy prices have skyrocketed like this. So we're seeing companies announce layoffs, production cuts, and this is really bad for Europe's economy. Europe is going to have to find a way to muddle through this period before they can essentially rebuild their entire energy system on the fly. So the stakes are high. And that brings us to our second question. What are European countries doing to solve the energy crisis? Of the most surface level options, a lot of European countries have been in the process of voluntarily trying to reduce and conserve energy. Italy announced Operation Thermostat. Turn up your thermostat, essentially don't use as much air conditioning as you're used to. In France, where you will have air conditioning blasting, but also the door to your shop or restaurant open, basically all businesses that have air conditioning have to install these sort of like doors where the door goes shut. In Germany, a lot of cities have announced that they're not gonna have hot water in public buildings. You know, in Cologne, you know, they have this beautiful Gothic cathedral that's floodlit all night. They're cutting the lights at a certain amount of time. There's a lot of sort of micro level things people are being forced to think about doing. And on the macro level, Germany's keeping open its remaining nuclear power plants that were supposed to close. And despite Europe's climate plans, coal-fired plants are being used again. Some countries are deciding it's time for the government to step in. The governments of Finland and Germany have already bailed out energy companies by the millions to offset costs. Brand new UK Prime Minister Liz Truss announced a price cap on household energy bills today, and Germany announced a 65 billion euro relief package to help families stay afloat. But these are mostly solutions for the short term. Philip says leaders are gonna have to start thinking long term here. They have to figure out a new system of finding the energy that they need to drive. What is the world's second largest economic unit if you think about the European Union. So that'll be more renewables. It'll be more liquefied natural gas coming from the US and other countries in Africa as well. It'll be coal, you know, really dirty sources for a while. And it'll be rationing, voluntary or otherwise. The EU is meeting on Friday to create an actual plan to deal with the energy crisis. But zooming out, this isn't just a European issue. Which brings us to question three. How will this looming energy crisis affect us? 
our prices are going up somewhat in sympathy with the European prices. U.S. liquefied natural gas is going to Europe. They're drawing away some of our supply. So in order to retain more of our supply, our prices need to rise a little bit too. And so that's what we've seen. I mean, there's been actually a tremendous rise in U.S. natural gas prices. This year alone, they're up more than 100%. So they've doubled. And that is going to feed through to U.S. consumer heating and electricity bills. And just like we're seeing in Europe right now, high energy costs don't just stop at powering our homes. Energy powers our industries. It powers our food system. The cost of stuff goes up when the cost of energy does. Not to mention, American companies selling products in Europe will be hit too. Because as European consumers spend more of their incomes on energy bills, that means less pocket money to spend elsewhere. If there's one thing the U.S. can take away from the energy crisis, Phillips says it comes back to who we choose to rely on for the energy that makes our way of life possible. National governments are, are reminded that you don't want to rely on somebody who's your strategic adversary to send you things you really, really need. We're likely to see a lot of focus on building sustainable energy systems within national boundaries, but wars still happen. And it's important to be thinking about these long-term decisions we make about who we rely on for the stuff that we need. On Monday, you probably saw headlines about two words you maybe hadn't heard together before. Special master. It's the latest development in the Mar-a-Lago saga, pitting former President Donald Trump against the Justice Department over what could be a dangerous national security breach. But wait, what even is a special master? We'll break down the latest developments and why this is happening in 60 seconds. Last month, FBI agents raided Trump's Florida residence at Mar-a-Lago. They believed he might have illegally left the White House with classified information. During the search, they found several classified documents and over 10,000 government files, including photos and empty folders labeled secret and confidential. We don't know the specifics of everything they found, but on Tuesday, we saw reports that the documents included details on an undisclosed country's military defenses, including nuclear capabilities. And that has U.S. intelligence officials worried. Trump's legal team says this search was unfair, and they requested one of these special masters to step in and review the documents taken. So, uh, what is a special master, and why does it sound like something from Fifty Shades of Grey? To skim it, a special master refers to a third party, usually an attorney, that the court picks to carry out action on its behalf. They can't be associated with any aspect of the case they're brought onto, and calling on one is very rare. And this week, a Trump-appointed federal judge in Florida gave the former president's team a W by approving their request. The special master's job will be to review the box of classified docs the FBI retrieved last month and they'll be looking to see whether agents took material that could be considered privileged. As in, protected from the investigation because of attorney-client privilege, or even executive privilege. In the meantime, the judge said the DOJ can't use any of these documents in its investigation of Trump until the special master's review is done. 
The DOJ says the delay puts national security interests at risk. But both Trump and the judge say it's necessary to keep the process fair. So what happens now? Well, first things first, this person has to be appointed, and the DOJ and Trump's lawyers are submitting names for candidates by Friday. So if you thought any major political bombshells were dropping before the midterms, keep looking. How'd we do? Want us to skim a question from the news? Send an email to audio at theskim.com. When the autumn wind blows and the leaves begin to change, it can only mean one thing. Pumpkin spice lattes are back on the menu. But the scariest thing about spooky season this year is that the PSL is back with a higher price tag. Starbucks announced that this year, a grande pumpkin spice latte could cost you as much as $5.95. If you're like us, You've been thinking about the budget lately, and coffee runs are often the first thing to get the chop. But if fall flavors are the one thing keeping your seasonal depression from creeping in, have no fear. We called up an expert to help you recreate the magic from home. My name is Becky Crystal, and I am a staff writer at Braciously at Washington Post Food. First, what even is in a pumpkin spice latte? It relies heavily on what a lot of us in the food world call warming spices. So the backbone of that is usually cinnamon. There's often supporting rolls from ginger and nutmeg, sometimes cloves. And so that's the combination that we think of when we think of pumpkin spice. I think for a lot of people, it dredges up nostalgia and coziness. That signature spice mix has made its way into a lot of interesting products from deodorant to scented makeup. And along the way, Crystal told us that the composition of that fall fragrance has strayed a little from the path. Once it started taking off into products that are beyond baking, you know, sometimes they can come across as very overly cinnamon, very overly nutmeg. It tastes very fake. You can even kind of get this air freshener potpourri sort of thing. And I think that's where people sort of have gotten turned off from what is actually in its original form. Very good. Turns out going the DIY route for that fall drink is easy at home and it tastes better too. It's as easy as buying spices that are already ground. If you're a baker or a cook, you probably already have all the components in your pantry, right? So it's mixing your cinnamon and your cardamom if you want. That's one of my things I like to add, your ginger and your cloves. And you can play around with the ratios. You know, usually cinnamon is the main one and the other ones come in. So you can just mix that together and voila, you have pumpkin spice. You can also buy pumpkin spice blended already at the store. All the major spice companies sell it, which still is much better than what you're going to find in products already. Crystal shared a bunch of different ways to integrate warm fall spices into our morning drinks. If you're someone who likes flavored tea, boil your tea and include a little bit of the pumpkin spice in there when you're steeping. And you're going to get a really subtle, nuanced flavor. It's going to feel very true to the spices. 
If you are someone who likes chilled beverages and you sweeten them a little bit, you can make simple syrup and steep whole spices. So if you have a couple cinnamon sticks, you can even use ground spices in there if you strain it out. So like heat your sugar and water to form a simple syrup, add the spices, let it hang out, and then strain it and cool it. And you can add that to drinks. My mom always likes to sprinkle cinnamon over her coffee grounds when she makes coffee and the kind of traditional percolator. So you could do that. You could just sprinkle a little pumpkin spice. It's not going to be overpowering. It's going to sort of be this background note that's going to be nice. But she warned us, there's such a thing as pumpkin spice overload. I think you'd have to be careful if you were throwing it into a curry or a soup or something where you would otherwise use spices. I think it might take it in a direction you don't want to go before anything savory. I would think about it before you do it. Okay, fine. So maybe no pumpkin spiced meatloaf this year. But in the meantime, so long, Starbucks. <sighs> Thanks for listening to Skim This. This podcast was skimmed by me, Will Livingston, along with our senior producer and regular host, Alex Carr, and associate producer, Blake Lou Merwin. We had additional help this week from Alicia Key. This episode was engineered by Ellie McAfeehan and Andrew Calloway, and the Skim's head of audio is Graylin Brashear. Skim This will be back on your feed next week. Until then, check out the Skim's other podcast, 9 to 5-ish. That's where we talk all things career with our founders, Carly and Danielle. <laughs>